Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Joanna Bucknell and you are listening to the first ever episode of Tate Scholar. That's T-A-I-T, which is short for talking about immersive theatre. Uh, this is a sister series to the usual Tate uh, episodes and we'll have a slightly shifted focus. So in response to listeners and to some of my colleagues who do also listen, uh, I've developed this series as a way of creating a discussion space that looks at things from a little bit more of a kind of scholarly, academic or research based perspective. So the focus is still very much going to be immersive performance, interactive performance uh, and uh, audience centric performance. But it's going to be much more about kind of theoretical and research discussions rather than about making discussions. So I really do hope um, this is something that interests you as well if you've been listening to Tate Standard um, for the last couple of years. It won't be as regular as usual Tate um, has been in the past just because academics, scholars and researchers time is a little bit more challenging to pin down especially in the current climate uh, of Covid and HE um, delivery at the moment. But I do have three episodes recorded that are going to be coming out um, over the next week or so. And I would love to hear your thoughts um, on this new type of discussion and this new approach. But in the meantime, here is the first ever episode of Tate Scholar. And I really do hope that you enjoy it. So I'm here in cyberspace with Perseus Shaji Maravala from Zoo UK. Uh, Jaji has worked as an artistic director of Zoo UK's projects uh, in London uh, since 2006 and has co-delivered the MA in Contemporary Performance Practices at the University of East London and now the MA in Contemporary Performance at the University of Greenwich. So her artistic work has won awards and nominations in the fields of interactive theatre, hybrid art and innovation and her most acclaimed project Hotel Medea was the highest rated event by both public and press, becoming the standout hit of the world's largest art festival, the Edinburgh Fringe 2011. And I just wanted to add in there a little thing that it's my biggest regret that I never managed to uh, participate in Hotel Madeira. It's like my biggest regret of my career. <laughs> I've read so much and seen so much and I'm like, darn, I wanted to be there, but I couldn't get a ticket. So anyway, that's just a little aside. <laughs> Uh, she's the director and writer of Good Night, Sleep Tight, Binaural Dinner Date, Pick Me Up and Hold Me Tight, Hashtag Rio Phone Hack, East London Workers' Party and Missing. She works at the intersection of games, performance and technology and believes post-immersive approaches to dramaturgy can enable audiences to find new ways of engaging with one another meaningfully. Her work has focused more recently on mediating relationships between strangers particularly through the use of sound design and instruction-based performance. Her response to COVID-19 has been to create Playground, an online interactive live game show, and Project Perfect Stranger, which has seen close to 250 strangers connect in intimate encounters across the world via their phones. Jaja is committed to reclaiming public spaces as sites for people to gather, as a way to reduce barriers to audience participation and to actively push for fairer and more equal opportunities for working class people. So thank you very much uh, for joining me and taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, 
Thank you. <laughs> so there are um, probably a, a, a million things that I would really like to discuss with you. Um, but I wondered if you could just kick us off by talking a little bit about your own background and kind of what brought you to the theatre and more specifically to audience centric practices. Hmm. OK, um, so I suppose one of the ways that how I entered theatre really was by being embedded in cultural practices um, that led me to the work of people like uh, Odin Teatro and uh, Ugina Barber and um, Jetsi Grotowski. And um, back in 94, um, I started working with Jonathan Grieve and joined Paraactive. And we were really influenced by um, the work of Grotowski. And in that work, one of the things that we found really fascinating, Jonathan in particular, was already back then. So when I already started making work, we were working um, in, in a very uh, kind of thoughtful way about audiences and uh, kind of trying to take over really from where, in some ways, where Grotowski had left off with his um thoughts around the actor as doer and the audience as testimonials you know as the audience as witnesses as opposed to audiences and so this this really this this really interesting shift in how you could see audience is as active and participatory even if it was just on the level of the responsibility they now, now had for watching rituals um became i guess the like i never stopped doing that do you know what i mean that just mm -hmm. that was just laid there foundationally um but i come from yemen and i was brought up around the cultural practices of my of my family home of my of of my origins um and these cultural practices i think also embedded in me um how audiences were also participants in the sense that when we would have these things called gumnuts, they're kind of like loosely translated as party, but it's not really party because we have other words for party. But a gumnut is where um, people, um, I guess I think in like in English, I think the closest equivalent would be something like a sing song, you know what I mean? A sing along, mm -hmm. like something where there's not that, I'm the singer, I'm the one with the good voice, I know what I'm doing. It's just where the act of singing is is in everybody as a way of being closer and being a community and just being together. So I, I had all, I had that kind of background, like in my family, it was very much like, oh, so-and-so get up and do that song. And, you know, so-and-so plays the tambourine and everything gets swapped around. And then my mum was also a dancer and my dad was a drummer. And yeah, so I was brought up with that. Um, it's only really very very retrospectively that i can even look back at that as an early influence it's mm -hmm. only now after having lived a lot of life that i look back on that time and go oh yeah that kind of laid the ground there a bit <laughs> you know um 
I think we, we always do that retrospectively, don't we? We don't mm. realise it, it's usually looking back at work when you're reflecting and you're like, oh, these and you pull pull at the threads and they take you back to places and you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I totally no, see why, why this why this is a thing for me. <laughs> Mm, mm. Yeah, I think retrospection in the kind of work that we make um, is is important in terms of knowing what it like in the in the middle of it. You just don't know what it is. Mm. You just don't know what you're doing. You know, I think we didn't know what we were really doing. We're just moving on on such an instinctive plane that um, there was without plan. That is only afterwards when you join the dots you can make some sort of narrative, but retrospectively. Yeah, and I think retrospection, reflection is, is a nostalgia in a way too, I think mm -hmm. is always something that I get from your work. Mm -hmm. So that kind of leaps me actually into sort of uh, moving on from those influences and that kind of early stage so can you talk a little bit about for the listeners Zoo UK and and the type of work that you make for anyone yeah. who might might astonishingly someone listening to an immersive podcast might not know <laughs> um yes yeah, so ZU UK we we were um a combination of Paraactive which is the company with Jonathan and um and Zikura Ura which was the company of uh, Jorge Lopez Ramos with his um collective and we merged in 2006 so we'd already both of us built up quite a lot of you know quite a lot of um work behind us and we came together because of a shared interest in his interest was much more about um public space i would say and uh, he his george's work was at that time just very very uh, kind of lateral in the sense that his his interests were very wide and he would take and pull from a real a real wide kind of lake of of um of interests of influences and create work that was really surprising and in very unusual situations and, and site specific. My work up until then had been a very vertical, working on the vertical plane, on the vertical axis, working uh, very, very much with actor training and being quite kind of like shy and finding just the world very difficult. Um, I, I was more or less like a hermit, which was really the opposite of George. <laughs> uh, so it's very weird how we came together. I think we probably were looking for the other one to compensate certain behaviors in, in each other. Um, so he um, and I were joined in one thing, which was a, a conviction that there was something missing in in like in a in the kind of British theatre scene or how we experienced what we thought of as theatre, and we were both very very much on the outside of things, um, in in terms of our um, origins and our backgrounds. Um, we weren't part of any inner circles or anything like that. So there was a real DIY approach, right, to how, how we started, which I guess, you know, everybody who was in this scene right at the beginning, right at the top of it, will say that 
uh, a lot of the work was made as a response to a lack of opportunity and stuff like that. But anyway, the work we do now um, is is uh, very much in that intersection of of games and technology and playable performance and um, liveness. And we don't really have any particular um, platform or way of working we just have ideas and when we have a good idea we'll just run with it and so it really is whatever the idea wants it to be um we have made like some of the things that you mentioned we made hotel medea which was an overnight show that began at midnight and ended at dawn um we have made binaural dinner date which is essentially a dating agency um uh, and an and an audio driven piece. We've made um, Rio Phone Hack, which was bringing over from Brazil lots of phone boxes and installing them in the UK and having interactive experiences uh, hacked into them. And the phone, the phone stuff didn't stop being interesting, actually, just in terms of kind of old technologies we're quite interested in and um, not having the means to be cutting edge I suppose it's kind of like how can we be really good at being blunt edged um, and using these old things to to create yeah create intimacy and that's our main uh, main drive and so the phone thing has also morphed a little bit into another project which is called pick me up and hold me tight which is a project that responds to the rising suicide rates in the uk and um it was a project that will make all the uk phone boxes ring at the same time which is at 11 30 on the 1st of january um being the spike of suicide rates in the uk the yearly spike um and having an interactive experience. So all the phones ringing at the same time. And then also if they get picked up, there's this uh, experience that you can have on the phone. Um, what else have we done? We've done Goodnight Sleep Tight, which is a VR project, which was driven by a totally female um, tech team that worked on creating a piece which in which was mixed reality or mixed media where audiences come in um, and are put to bed um, by a uh, actor and using a real touch and the touch that they think that they're seeing in the VR, you create a kind of experience where you're simultaneously seeing stuff happening on the VR whilst um, a synchronized um real world touching on your body on your skin is happening at the same time um and so we're making an app at the moment which is a three player game that you play in shopping malls and um that's going to be an app that is hopefully driving thinking towards ethical consumption um so that's the that's the thing that I'm kind of working on at the moment. So those are the sorts of things we do. Thank you. Uh, I've experienced um, two of those pieces of work uh, firsthand. Um, one of them today, which was very <laughs> exciting, uh, kind of done live. 
Uh, and there is something in other people that I've spoken to as well, This can, there has been a resurgence of exploring the intimacy that comes with old telephones, old-fashioned telephones. I've called them old-fashioned, which feels crazy because it was such a part of my growing up and my experience. Mm. Um, and I know that Coney also have been exploring this as well um, during lockdown. And I, so I think it's really interesting that there are kind of threads that seem to be running across uh the practices that sit outside of some of the big mainstream kind of immersive um, work. So just, I don't really know what else to say about that. It was just something I kind of have picked up on is that the phones and the intimacy of phones, and especially that kind of analog phone does mm. seem to be something that is definitely playing at the edges of work that's, that's happening at the moment. So I think that's really interesting. Um, so I know that your mental health status is a fundamental condition that impacts the way in which you make work and I wondered if you might speak in a bit more detail about that because you've kind of alluded slightly but I thought if, if you could open that up a little bit that would be quite interesting to uh, talk about. Yeah sure I, I yeah <laughs> it is quite um it, it's it's weird because it's quite it's really new for me uh to be talking about this um i recently well it was over covid that i um had more time to think and thinking about my status and just how long i had spent in hiding it but how it felt like the world was just a more kind of accepting and mm, knowing place um around mental health uh, issues and yeah i don't i don't know it's um i get i guess when i think about what it is that i have it's um the main the main issue really is not about um shame like I, I think often when I've when I've spoken about it the little that I have spoken about it I've been kind of complimented and sort of said oh you're very brave mm. um and I wonder about that word brave um because it, it just feels a little bit yeah I don't know how to explain it it just feels like okay there just feels something wrong with that word. It just feels like it's a little bit condescending. It feels like it's shame repackaged as respect or something. But you know, if you yes. if you unwrap that word a little bit, you'll kind of feel the feel the sting. So I'm thinking about how Sara Ahmed uh, she calls this um, the cost of not following the scripts of normative existence, and I think that really. Uh, for me, you know, describes that my, how my body's sense of being out of place, you know, it's a kind of shame that's born out of the desire to fit in. Because um, we all have that interest of being part of something, being part of a place. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, so this out of placeness and being put in the kingdom of the sick, as Susan Sontag calls it, is, is, yeah, it's just over COVID. I think it's just been something that I've had the time to be able to contextualize and look over the background of it and start to write about that a little bit. And um, what my condition is, is basically I have a condition called um, severe PTSD syndrome. And that has 
that has like all these other associated symptoms. One of the symptoms is that I can have kind of the, like these sort of white out, what I call white out moments, um, where I'll, I'll just, um, find it really difficult to, to talk, to be cohesive. And even it's interesting to me that even like your invite for me to do this, I was, I remember that the first time we spoke, um, I was in a kind of having a sort of mania episode where I was very, very, very up and very animated and very all for it. And then I have these waves that take you into different states. So today, like, you know, the state is like very much subdued and I start to feel a bit of stress about um, being interviewed. And instead of going, running, like hiding, um, behind other people in my in my group and in my company or in my ensemble, as I have done for so many years, um, I'm starting to become a little bit interested in going towards that stress and to explore the stress part and to let people know what's going on with me, like let them come into an experience that I go through every single day. And this kind of platform that we're doing now, um, being interviewed, etc., is not normally, it's not very ac accessible for like differently abled speakers. Because um, as a culture, we're really biased uh, towards fluent speakers. Um, and I think that is also a class issue, um, like confidence and entitlement and kind of um, also just the ability to just own space and take space is also it's linked in with fluency or in my case the lack of and yeah and that and that lack of fluidity between thought and speech and becoming sort of incoherent and the way that my brain will lean into feelings rather than thoughts um i want it now to become something that's yours and mine do you know what i mean like it doesn't just belong to me like my mental health problem but because you're with me in this conversation you're also trying to make sense of me and so it becomes something that we share you know it like it becomes the issue rather than something that I'm crippled with mm -hmm. um so I can I can say for example right now you know I'm able to do this but I've had to turn the camera off for example which is is like one way of of just dealing with the the this kind of crippling um feeling that i have this burden to to talk smoothly and um moving on from all of the, those disorders that i suffer from I, I think that in some ways um it ties into something else that i think is at is at stake um which is about time um I had a I had an interview uh, about two weeks ago, and um, they said you will have a five minute presentation, and you know, and then ten minutes for this, and it was all like, and I thought, oh my god, you know, if I yeah, if my if I if I have a cutout in the middle of that, it's it, you know, I don't I can't predict how long it will take for me to speak 
So that was that was um, interesting because what they were trying to be really fair mm. in, in eliminating, um, you know, in, in saying that everybody who does this gets exactly the same amount of time and that's a way of being fair. But in eliminating one hierarchy, they kind of created another one because with yeah. the expectations that everyone's very um, able voiced and yeah so so that experience of time I'm very interested I think that that goes into my work a lot and mm. it, it definitely is in the next piece that I'm making which is um, about slowing down and feeling like we you know in, ter in terms of the planet and the world and climate change and most climate change experts agree that it's not about it's not even about kind of radically changing everything we do. It's if we just slowed down. Um, and so where our experience of time is so regulated and it's just like, you know, how, um, how like jazz has um, in some ways a really racialized element of resistance against the normal structures of time, like, you know, why are, you know, why does it, why does a song have to be three minutes? You know, where do these decisions come from? And like punk refused also to make songs that were three minutes long. If they wanted to do a 50 second song, they did, you know, it was very, so it's interesting to me because when we did, um, a piece and people are like why is it overnight why do you have to make a piece that's like six hours long or whatever it's it's like what are we trying to achieve through this work is different to what a 90 minute play with an interval is going to achieve mm. different and as a non-white person it's really important how time and access to time is is actually quite racially inflected in in the sense that there are many many instances where a woman of color is not given as much time to speak as her white male counterparts, for example. So making work from 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 my background intersects with so many things because there's this, um, you know, there's my there's the conditions that I live with, and how they intersect also with, um, like class. I, I think that that's it's sometimes it's really hard for me to separate, um, and I know that I've sat with other theatre makers that are working in similar ways to me at conferences or whatever and I noticed something about them which is like very um don't know I can't explain it but they're like very much talking like oh I had this amazing oh, I had this idea and what I thought was that I would do this thing that I had come up with and it's all in me because I'm the genius. So there's mm. something, something a bit like, um, of that Victorian model of like what geniuses were, where they were somehow channeling and they were just brilliant. And there was completely like completely owned, um, their, their skills and their ideas as if, as if, uh, nobody, there wasn't, there's, they, they don't have to lean into anything else. And so I, I noticed that when I talk about like my ideas and stuff, it's always coming out of like what's happened to me, you know, how the world has affected me. When they talk about it, they're talking about how they affect the world how their amazing ideas are affecting the world. So I, I noticed that kind of difference in, um, in 
the sorts of people that are at the front of making um, the kind of work that we're making and how much that has definitely um, impacted on me and what COVID has done. Obviously, the symbolic order has taken a hit. So it's a chance to just rip apart all of it is just to say, right, that's enough. I'm not, you know, I'm I'm not going to hide anyone. I'm not going to hide behind George. I'm not going to be hiding behind my team because that's literally what I have done because I don't look like um, a guy. Oh, you know, I, I, I'm not, I haven't been to a posh school. I don't have a posh name. I'm not, I'm not white. I'm not a male. Um, and I haven't got a network you know, of like other people to call upon and create, you know, create, be able to create work off of all the, off of all those kinds of support systems. I very much feel that class is, um, I, I like the way Kelly Green talks about class. She calls it a feeling and a knowing. And I really like that how she speaks about it being a knowing of some things and a feeling of inadequacy about not knowing other things and the whole like knowing you know what to say the right things to say at the right time the right manners the right language all of that entitlement um it might not it might not have an effect at that moment but you've bought you've grown up with that you know you've grown up with kind of coming from the wrong social environment from your from from your now class like what happens when you're to a working class person when they are experiencing opera for example or go to a conference for example and you know and I, we've spoken a little bit about this and it's just that inadequacy and you know there so then on top of like just struggling with my actual brain I'm kind of struggling for my footing in this dynamic and I have been absolutely ignored in the scene and I just don't want to take it anymore. And especially as I don't even think that that work um, is, I don't know. I don't know what it's moving forward. I don't know. I just don't make, I mean, I don't make work for the rich. I won't anymore. And I think um, that's something that happened in Hotel Medea, which was quite uh, interesting in, in that we'd worked so hard and we were so um, kind of happy to to be at things like, you know, at the South Bank or, or whatever in a really naive way. Um, and we had, like you said, you know, you couldn't get a ticket and people were outside touting the tickets. And there was this crowd of people who were coming who, um, were there because it was the thing to do because they were able to get tickets easily and they'd got in and th th they did not really care about the work. You know, and there were some moments in the night where they were bored. They were bored. It really wasn't for them. It wasn't, they were not our tribe. And it really made us question like, fuck, what are we doing? Like, who are we, who are we making um, this work for? And I'm not going to be, uh, I'm not interested in in um, being, you know, like a secret cinema or a punch drunk. Uh, I am absolutely not interested. And in fact, I am absolutely opposed to those groups. They make me sick. <laughs> Just wanted yeah. to say it to be like properly, <laughs> properly <I know>. provocative. <laughs> well, 
Uh, Secret Cinema just got a million. Sorry to interrupt. The Secret Cinema just got a million pounds off of the. Yeah. I mean, I was just going to say that. I was like, go I on, saw you that. say it. <laughs> I saw that, and I was, and I have some friends who um, have come to its kind of defence, and I haven't. I should say something on Facebook because, but I, I was infuriated. I was like, why do they need that? It's entirely, pretty much a corporate venture. It's why are they getting this kind of money? And yeah, so it infuriated me a little bit as well yeah. <laughs> when I saw that. But what I was going to say is, the I think. It's so interesting to hear you talking about how these things kind of your background and your mental health status and how all of these things converge. And what it seems to me, and especially having you know, experienced the, the work um, only moments ago, really, mm. is this compulsion, which I, I think I share actually in my work of circumventing all of those cultural problems and, and sort of starting with a brand new contract and making it quickly but together with the audience and and that's something I think about your work that is is really beautiful is that idea of you and me let's let's try and do this thing together in this moment right now for now starting from scratch you know you're a stranger I'm a stranger let's come together and, and do this in this moment and and that that for me really consolidates hearing you talk about your background and talking about these things as to why that is such a wonderful thing is to create that community or that mm. tribe but it's transitory as well just in that moment for that moment for those eight minutes for those 12 minutes or overnight with uh hotel Medea. and and that's something about your work i think is really provocative and mm. resistant in in the ways that you're talking about yeah yeah i i agree i think that they're yeah I mean it's really it's really hard work um facing off to these you know to these effort this kind of big public relations machine which is calling immersive um this kind of childish way of of talking about experiencing performance in this kind of wonderland narnia hogwarts a kind of you know childhood fantasies promising you this aesthetic experience falling down a rabbit hole can um, i um can i read a small section from the manifesto because i think it just it it's well it's something i was going to bring up and i think it, it resonates right now and i think I'd quite like listeners to be able to hear it sort of directly, if that's okay. Of course, of course. Um, I'll do my best to read it well. <laughs> <laughs> so audiences are promised an absolution from the mundane by entering into a collaborative, reciprocal, inherently social relationship with actors. But this is an illusion. Immersive theatre has become detached from its radical origins. Its appropriation by advertisers, events promoters and PR consultants has rendered it a shorthand for selling tickets to elaborate and expensive fancy dress parties. And I just, <laughs> I think that just absolutely nails exactly what you're saying yeah. <laughs> right now. And uh, yeah. it's kind of like both hands up, hallelujah moment, kind of like, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, when you think about how we start, I mean, when I say we, I mean, I'm including you in that. Like, I I think that 
it was so much the whole necessity being the mother of how we began, which was that, you know, I didn't do site specific work because I woke up one day going, I'm a genius and I've decided that what theatre now needs is to move into site specific, you know, that's fucking, yes. that's just nonsense. What actually happened was that no theatre would let me come near them. Like really, they would not, they would just be like, oh, go away, go away, mm -hmm. little girl, you know, we don't. Um, and, I try, you know, and being experimental as well on top of it all was was the sort of um, cherry on the cake, really. It was bad enough having all those other outsider characteristics, but then also wanting to do experimental stuff was the final straw. Um, yeah. Just simply couldn't have the vocabulary to understand what I was saying. And now, you know, now look at it. I mean, it just kind of, it's just so odd where I get invited back to the very spaces that wouldn't have spat on me if I was on fire mm -hmm. to talk about the very work that they weren't interested in hearing about you know it's like really you know and I, I when I talk about immersive and stuff like that I'm not claiming to have any objective distance from those kinds of things because I am a completely embedded subject you know I'm absolutely of that world I'm not I'm not an objective outsider with the privilege of being an observer I this is the stuff of my experience and of my memories and i have lived with the fact that our kind of work you know any sort of edgy experimental work very quickly gets co-opted by the mainstream and that's not new that's old but but there is something about working as an artist now and i'm talking about just before, you know really about pre-covid because i think things have shifted a little bit during covid mm -hmm. that feels a bit like living in a video game you know you feel like you're running forwards creating alternatives to the to dominant ideologies but then at really like snapping at your heels is this mainstream and the real problem is that the alternative has become mainstream because our responses to the world you know, just become stolen and appropriated and radical ideas become repackaged as cool. And then the alternative has lost its definition. You know, there's no, there is no alternative because even irony becomes part of mainstream mm -hmm. vocabulary. Do you know what, do you know what I mean? I do. And this is, it, it's, we see it throughout cultural history, don't we? Of yes. Happen, ha with happenings, for example. Yeah. Alan Caprao in the end just went, hmm. fuck it, I'm not calling it that. There's nothing to do with me anymore. Hmm. <laughs> when it got co-opted by advertisers in exactly the same way and it became cool and everything was a yeah. happening. Yeah. I think we're in exactly that same moment with immersive. Everything is immersive. Everything is cool. I mean, I've seen crazy things called immersive, like it's in boxes of bloody cereal. And once that happens, you're like, <laughs> we're, we're done now. And so I yeah. think... And this could yeah, I mean, I, I, I wrote the man, we were writing the manifesto like five years ago. It's just taken so long <laughs> to write it um, that now it's almost, I don't know, it's almost, yeah, I, like five years ago, really, we were sort of looking around horrified. And I think also um, because a lot of my work is drawn on both mine and George's cultural backgrounds, um there's some there's something in me that wants to react against like western eurocentric 
colonial attitudes. And I feel like there's a lot of cultural appropriation that happens in a way that immersivity, I don't know if I make sense, but what I mean is that I think that we have, those of us who've spent all of our working lives, working hard to offer something that allows people to just be present with each other, right? In some, in some very basic way, immersivity, um, has now been turned into something that is the opposite of that. So in late stage capitalist situation has been turned into something that is completely devoid of its original meaning. It's been turned into a plaything. It's been fetishized. It's, it's something that is both exotic and yet attainable, something that you can hold in your hand um, and sell and use to sell other things. And this is totally against the spirit with which we made that work right we built those encounters because they were that and they were always purely um what's it called evanescent can't remember how to say that word but something sort of slightly ethereal you know that existed for a moment and then it's it's gone an activity that fades into the past you know as soon as and then it just relies on memory and it builds up this extraordinary sort of feeling around it to be in that here and now but that's what's been co-opted yes so let's say that's what the process of extraction but let's go even further and say that that is what is cultural appropriation to me it's taking a symbol or cultural practice outside of its original space outside of its context and then parachuting it in somewhere else and exploiting it for gain yes and that's so typically Colonial. <laughs> Colonial and, yeah. and capitalist and, and neoliberal and all of those things. And it's it's frustrating and disheartening to know that whatever you do that's that's resistant and that's alternative will just be sort of sucked into the machine and probably sold back to us on on the back of leggings. Yeah. Because yeah, that. and it, and it is it is galling. I mean, it becomes when when you see it, you know, in shopping centres. I've got nothing against shopping centres, by the way. I I've got a project that's coming up in shopping centres. I you know, <laughs> it's nothing about. But um, when you see what it can become, this really thin and diluted version of what it is, what makes me angrier is the kind of. Um, people that will walk around giving talks and lectures and interviews acting like they discovered it or that they you know that they um they've discovered principles that i've been working with since 1992 is something that white culture does really well it discovers things in no matter that they're five thousand years old like yoga or mm-hmm. you know and i've seen it in so much like looking at how uh, all kinds of things if you look at market um exotic you know overpriced exotic food um that that in the it's street food yeah. Street food, where I come from, exists to feed working class people who are on the move and they can't, they don't even have the luxury to sit down to eat. That's yeah. what street food is. Whereas here, street food is like a trendy way to buy, you know, I don't know, whatever, kebab or whatever, it like for yeah. 10 quid in tiny portions <laughs> and sitting on a bench on the South Bank. And it's just like luxurious and trendy when it's actually come out of something that is about poverty 
-hmm. you know, and the growth of of trendy yoga spaces, for example, that are all mm -hmm. occupied by skinny white girls, yeah, um, sipping their green tea in recycled bamboo cups <laughs> made by someone, you know, very fucking poor. Um, it's it's just like that everywhere. Upper middle class white kids wearing NWA sweatshirts because hip hop mm -hmm. again, hip hop totally co-opted capoeira totally co-opted mm -hmm. um parkour totally co-opted so it's it's these things that have kind of established practice that we to resist as well is so difficult like how do i you know how does one survive as well financially how do you keep your company going how do you look after your freelancers where do you draw the line um i i've after covid and you know covid's been a really interesting moment hasn't it because we've 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 quietened down we've become more reflective with there's a bit of stillness a bit of thinking um and i knew very early on that i had to do something in the community you know i couldn't just today mm -hmm. just couldn't just like sit there and fucking bake banana bread or whatever it was that everyone seemed to be doing obsessively yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and learn a new language and all the rest of it um well again productivity is neoliberal and there's this yeah. like, and I, I felt the pressure of that enormously um during covid mm. and yet i didn't i didn't get the chance to slow down i didn't get the chance to do any of those things because work was ridiculous and has hasn't really stopped being that way so i oh. found that in he we've all been under incredible pressure yeah um to churn out you know effectively OU on top of what we normally do too <laughs> i know it's in a, I know. yeah and i found that really hard and then what that's done is stifled kind of my ability to to be quiet at the moment i, I find it really difficult to find moments to be quiet mm. and to even start to think about how to find intimacy in the ways that I do in my practice in a digital realm. And I just, I haven't found, I haven't found that yet for me and for what, for finding ways of connecting with others in ways that I have found really kind of meaningful and fruitful in the past. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've not sort of found my way through the digital realm yet. I have with work and I have with my research and all of those other things kind of uh, yeah, I spend my life on Zoom, <laughs> but maybe that's why I'm struggling. I think so hard to to find that digital space mm. and that quiet. Mm. Yeah, I think it it worked it worked for me to kind of just you know try to set sort of safely um, when we were in, when we were in the wave one and proper lockdown. Um, just to do just to do very simple things like deliver food to people who were shielding and 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 pick up shopping and just stuff that i don't know just grounded me and reminded me of um of community really and joining the mutual aid um covid19 group in my area was was something that i mean it's funny isn't it because you think you're volunteering and people are like so thankful and like oh thank you for doing this thank you. and actually i was like oh thank fuck that you're here because <laughs> i really need to kind of like not you know because your mental health takes a massive hit in these situations yeah. and so in terms of like staying a bit sane and um and being worried about all my my community i, I live in a very very like frontline -y area i live in um 
in Stratford in East London. Mm-hmm. And uh, at one point, Newham Arbara was the worst. It was the hot spot of COVID, mainly because uh, we have huge um, immigrant population, but also because there is so there are a lot of frontliner. Uh, workers live in Stratford, then they go and work in other boroughs, doing yeah. things like being bus drivers, nurses, and so all my all my neighbours are frontline workers, and um, and they did, and yeah, in the in the beginning, it was it was on my um, in my little road. Um, there was quite a few of my neighbours that that did unfortunately catch the first wave of it because of their jobs. So, yeah. like my daughter goes to a school with very you know, ordinary working, um, working class people. And uh, she, she also caught COVID because the kids are kids, parents are having to be out there. They're out there in the, in the real world. So it really does like, you know, make you think, okay, what am I doing is like, where are we going with this? What's, how do I continue to feel that what I do as an artist is of value to the world in a real way. Mm. And I think that that's it, isn't it? It's about connection. And with all of the people we've mentioned before, all of the kind of the big corporate players in the immersive, I always feel like something was stolen from me. And I don't just mean the money, (laughs) (laughs) but I feel swindled and I do feel like something is was was stolen and something was taken or something was just not fulfilled in in terms of a promise yes i agree i think that it was a betrayal in some ways like i if you think about who benefits on a big macro level of of that world that i've just been talking about you know the the mainstream and co-opting and from not just from our kind of artwork but also other practices um who benefits in the end are corporations who corporations who use these ideas as part of their launches or their sales event and an immersive which was never about making money or selling products has 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 turned into that and thus we have become unfree again you know we've moved away from the freedom that immersive promised and into the betrayal that it now represents Yeah, and it really is a betrayal of the potential that it meant um, because the potential was about mobilizing and like allowing people spaces in which they were able to kind of witness systems you know and not yeah and not be um and not just be sort of swindled i mean it's it's kind of like disgusting really when the real freedom that um that these big players offer you is like oh are you going to you know are you going to buy chocolates or so you just you're just free to be sold at you know what i mean and when you think about how much um how many of these big shows where they have inside the show participant participation is kind of 
all about consumption, you know, how to consume more. And the and, and I think you mentioned it as well the other day about bar, the bar and how the bar mm-hmm. worked. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no care given to designing an experience about empathy or intimacy or any of that. It's got this inherent commercial nature. It doesn't a- allow for any social interaction. It's just um it's not thoughtful you can't explore meaningful engagement with their fellow participants in a way that is what i try to try to do there's no attempt um to even look at your audiences who are coming in the eye sometimes you can't even see them because you put a mask on their face um (laughs) so it's like there's just so much wrong with being with people telling me that oh no but these audiences they've got true freedom they've got all they've got is the freedom to choose between beer and vodka they've got freedom to spend money it's commercial transactions i mean when you have when you have groups that are working for um rupert murdoch what is there left to say full circle (laughs) indeed i agree and um it's even to the point where I mean I went to I did I did a research trip um, to New York a couple uh, about four years ago now five years ago um, that was funded through research funding and I went to um, some of the big shows over there and you literally could buy your tier of experience so depending on your ticket depending on what you could access and what you could do um, and they were considerably more money as well and um, oh, yeah. I was kind of horrified by that and yeah, disgusted. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, when you have effectively companies working for large brands to launch things, then it, it has become kind of so far away from what is the, the fundamental thing of liminal space, which is where all these things should unfold is that it's, radically it's it's potentially radically transformative yeah and I think all of all of those big offers remove that possibility completely and do the opposite of that I I find them I feel dirty (laughs) when I come out and I I like I said I feel dirty bereft and like I've had something stolen from me no there I I completely agree with you and it's not you know and if anyone dares to come to me and say like oh it's sour grapes or something like that they you know I dare them I dare them because <laughs> I wouldn't work for Murdoch. I would put, you know, and, and sometimes you do have to make difficult um, calls for your company. You've got to draw like, okay, I don't really want to, um, uh, like we really investigate, like I would never work for, I don't know, Israel, for example, that would just be one of my my no-nos mm-hmm. and now my no-nos are becoming that the list is getting higher <laughs> like you yeah. know it's longer so it's very difficult it means it means that you don't have that corporate you just don't have that that um corporate but you know the other thing about being like working class and coming from my background of course is that um i have the resilience that comes from being someone who grew up completely devoid of any sort of safety net Mm-hmm. So I wonder sometimes about middle class people, like how much they ha- they swallow and they'll accept because they've ne- they've not got that same. I don't know. There might be some f- 
fear or something about yeah I don't know I, I well, think that, it's about that also, loss isn't it it's like what you've got to lose and yeah also with some of the reputations and the infrastructures now involved in those companies there is a lot to lose yeah. and of course difference engine become our cautionary tale of all of that as well and so I think yeah maybe some of that is part of it there's yeah when you have more to lose it's more frightening to lose it when you have nothing to lose you think fuck it um yeah yeah <laughs> Do it. <laughs> but, but what were you what you were saying at the uh, just now just a couple of minutes ago um like the participating in those performances that you were talking about especially the tiered ones mm -hmm. um in these terms in immersive performance um it kind of replicates the injustice of reality mm -hmm. um in like you know, like real world justice, like con it's kind of consequently um, amplifies the same feelings of status anxiety and like inadequacy and economic yeah. e inequalities that that late capitalist society is really good at making mm -hmm. you feel right. And that's because the this the art success is then being measured in market value terms. Yeah. Um, and I think we know that now. I mean, it feels, it's funny because when I started writing, you know, we started, and, and others as well, like Adam Alston um, yeah. uh, wrote a fantastic essay, didn't he? I can't remember what it's called. Uh, something about punch drunk and the neo neoliberal value. Yes, yes. Uh, it's a, it's great. Um, and, and his book actually as well, um, pulls at those things and challenges right. those things yeah. which yeah. basically the book is 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 a much uh, richer and sort of uh enlarged version of the essay yeah uh, i didn't put that very well but that is effectively it's it's a broader approach but it has that the heart of that essay is at the heart of adam's book so yeah so yeah what do you do when you know if you if you, you know, I think I wouldn't mind so much if it was more honest. What mm. I can't bear is this kind of pretend that they're doing a really great thing for art and for participatory performance or like they they still want to stake in it as artists without actually sacrificing anything or without actually, you know, being able to make friends with big sponsors, mm. um, those kind of corporate the corporate wink you know those co-opters who want to be your friend but they're only using you because they want to increase their profit margins and that's all they want to do it is yeah. only about profitability so and they'll drop you as as soon as you're not as right that with difference engine the moment you're not viable or you're not valuable then yeah you're, you're done yeah yeah and it's in and i think it's yes and that's interesting because those like business agreements that are kind of somehow pretend to be masked as like philan you know philanthropy philanthropy yeah they fail to recognize as well that an artist's biggest work is probably not going to be their best no and no. um yeah so i think we you know it's about that cheapening cheapening of 
everything that I dedicated my entire life to. Mm -hmm. um, and now, you know, and artists are now required to create insincere art that contributes absolutely nothing new. And I, and I think that's really why we had to publish the Post-Immersive Manifesto. And I'm really glad you did. And I think actually we've opened up and discussed that and I would highly recommend people seek it out listening um, and go and have a read. It's not a difficult read, as in lots of long words. <laughs> <laughs> what are you trying to say, Joe? <laughs> but it, it is a provocative and it is a challenging read. And I think if, if people listening aren't involved in academia or in art I do think it's accessible in that way to be able Definitely. to do that so yeah. seek it out if you um you google it it does come up straight away <laughs> so you can find it on lots of different platforms as well that you should be able to access if you're listening well I'm very aware that we have been talking for a while and although there's a hundred other things we could definitely pull out and I'd love to chat maybe we could do it again mm -hmm. um, I am also aware of time actually marching on and as ever time poor <laughs> being a working mum and all of that uh yeah. makes me very time poor so I think I'm going to bring things uh to a rounding off and ask if you could let people uh listening know the very best way to find out about what you're doing the best way to keep in touch uh with what the UK are doing and to find out more about you where's the best places for people to find that information um well i think i think we have i think we have a website we do. <laughs> <laughs> i'm actually not sure it's been yeah i think we've got a website with probably there's contact details on it we have got some stuff um that we're doing at the moment called um playground game show which is um my response to to um COVID-19 and and what I think will be important in terms of going into a post-normal world mm -hmm. and we also are doing another project called Project Perfect Stranger which anyone can sign up to as well which is um, a project that connects people across the world um, through WhatsApp. Yeah, so both of those things are very, um, <laughs> very responding to us not being able to, you know, get out there and lick each other's faces as we might like. Exactly. <laughs> but that we still live in a very hyper interconnected and complex world and mm -hmm. that the, these uh, these two pieces are kind of, yeah, trying to be sort of convival and lighthearted and, and, and you know, and, and bring a little bit of lightness into everything that's going on considering... Mm -hmm yeah what's happening i think there's always a wry sense of humor in your work anyway it's never just kind of just intense and sort of a lot i think there's it's always light light but in a, in a way that is thoughtful yeah i don't know but with i i don't know if you've seen playground yet but you know it's a no, not yet. <laughs> so it's this sort of silly game show and um just thought that the only real British because essentially I am very very British um the only British response I can I can I can have to a global pandemic is to be a bit silly mm -hmm. um as a proper methodology though in terms of like I don't I'm not trying to deny the gravity of the situation but it really is a great way to get into a place of kind of shedding norms you know like mm -hmm. norm shedding like doing things in unusual and expect unexpected ways 
Um, and there's been loads and loads of stuff being published about how humor and playfulness functions as a really good way to reframe dire yeah. situations and how it can be a mechanism that creates psychological, um, what's it called, resilience and, you know, distance as, as well from, from negative mm -hmm. events. So, yeah, that cultivating that sense of the absurd has been really crucial for us in surviving these uncertain times. Absolutely. And I think um, people can also find you and find the projects on Facebook. I've definitely, definitely seen lots of activity in my Facebook feed okay. um, for the shows. So I think if people look on Facebook, they can find you there too. Brilliant. Well, I'd like to say thank you very much um, for being open and honest and frank and raising some difficult things to talk about in the industry. And I've really enjoyed talking to you and I hopefully people have enjoyed listening and if they didn't they can turn it off can't they that's the thing about that <laughs> <laughs> the old wireless as they say uh -huh. um, and I hope that we have the chance to um to pick this up and continue the dialogue and the discussion at some other point um but I wanted to thank you very much for being thank here you. today and spending thanks, all Jeff. of this time talking to me <laughs> thanks for giving me the space thank you very much all right bye now bye I really hope you enjoyed that first ever episode of Tate Scholar and that it's something that interests you as a Tate Standard listener. I would love to hear your thoughts and your feedback and your comments or to hear from you if you think that you are somebody that I should either be talking to for Tate Scholar or somebody that I should be talking to um, for Tate Standard. So whether you're a maker or a researcher or an academic or a scholar, uh, then please do get in touch. You can reach me at talkingaboutimmersivetheatre at gmail.com. So that's talkingaboutimmersivetheatre at gmail.com. Uh, I have an eye on that. Or failing that, if you Google me, I think my work uh, stuff pops up. So my work email address is there and you can reach me that way as well. And again, love to hear your thoughts, love to hear what you think, love to hear your feedback. Or if you're somebody that you think I should be talking to, then get in touch and I will do my very best. Things are extremely hectic for me at the moment. So I would ask for your patience and your forgiveness if I'm very slow in responding to you, um, just because I have a mountain uh, of work to do at the moment and I'm under a great deal of pressure in terms of my uh, day job and my research activity too. Um, so please bear with me, but get in touch and know that if you do get in touch at some point, I will reach out and respond to you. I absolutely promise. And I love hearing from you. So until the next episode, which is going to be following very shortly, I assure you, uh, bye bye. <laughs>